You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles. Again, it's 1 Kings 17, verses 1 through 24. Um, Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Now Elijah, the Tishbet of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord of God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and not die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. 
And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber, where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is your mouth is truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, well, good evening. My name's Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're really glad you're here, especially if you're new. I want to welcome you. Um, we are beginning our fall sermon series right now, even though it's not really the fall, um, but uh, we're going to be looking at the, um, the characters of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. And um, you might not even know there are characters called Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. And that's one reason I wanted to preach on this is because I knew those characters existed. Um, in fact, Elijah is the only other person uh, at the transfiguration of Jesus besides Moses. So you could almost say Moses and Elijah are the two biggest deals of the Old Testament, because they were the two there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, but I didn't really know a lot of the stories of the um, first kings, the second half of first kings that involved Elijah and Elisha. So, I knew they were important figures. Um, I didn't even know which came first necessarily, but it's Elijah. And um, these stories are odd. Um, there's one about bears. It's very strange. Um, there's one about these uh, prophets of Baal that dance around um, a, ca a cow, a, s a slain cow, and then the fire comes down eventually. Um, they're just, there's some very odd stories. This one is odd about this uh, jar uh, that just keeps producing bread and ravens taking bread to Elijah. So they're, they're very odd stories of, um, they're kind of bizarre miracles. Um, but what I, didn't, what I didn't realize is that's really not what they're about. They're, they're primarily, um, they're prophets, so they're witnesses, and they're witnessing to the continued reality and sovereignty of God, the rule, the ultimate rule of Yahweh, the living God, uh, even in a time of major apostasy and spiritual crisis. Because, um, they are sent only to the northern kingdom. And if you know the story of Israel, the northern kingdom is the kingdom that broke off from Israel, rebelled against Israel. They're apostate. Uh, they left Yahweh, essentially. And they became so uh, corrupt that they actually became persecutors of anyone who really believed in God. So they became almost like Egypt. And Ahab is the king, and he's almost like a pharaoh. And so that is where God sent Elijah and Elisha to only to the north and only when it got really, really bad. This didn't happen in the southern kingdom. They never got anybody like Elijah or Elisha. So God only sends them to the north when the, when the darkness has covered that land and Israel is resorting to paganism. They're going back to the worship of the Canaanite gods, especially Baal, uh, B-A-A-L. Uh, you can sometimes, people say that different ways, Baal, Baal, Baal. Um, but he is the god of the storm, the god of thunder, 
the rainmaker, the lord of fertility. He would be like Zeus or Thor. Uh, he came in many different forms throughout the ages, but um, that is the god that Ahab and his wife Jezebel worship. And that god was located, he kind of came out of the area of Sidon, which is where Jezebel came from. So from Sidon, they brought in this uh, foreign deity named Baal, who was supposedly the one that brings life. Israel began to worship Baal, and so then God sends Elijah as a witness to say that Baal does not give life, that Yahweh gives life. And in verse 1, you see the kind of the physical outward sign of the invisible reality, spiritual reality, which is there was no dew or rain for three years. Um, that, is, that is what Baal gives you. That's what God is demonstrating here, that if you want to worship a lifeless God, an idol, a nothing, then you're going to get three years of drought. But if you want to worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the living God, who brought Israel out of Egypt. Then, verse 22, the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. That's, that's what Yahweh does. He brings life, uh, the most abundant kind of life, the life of a human being he can bring out of death. So that's the contrast, uh, the lifelessness of idols, not just Baal, but any idol we worship strips us of our life, versus the life-giving power of Yahweh. So that is what Elijah and Elisha were sent to witness. Um, so I want to break this into two parts. First, the story of Elijah and the ravens, and then the widow at Tishbe in Sidon that he meets in the second half. So pretty simple outline. And the first thing that happens is Elijah shows King Ahab uh, where life really comes from. So this is uh, now the first point. Uh, verse 1, there will be no rain until I give the word. And of course, that's Elijah speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Elijah has no power at all in himself to do that. In the book of James, we read that Elijah was a man just like any of us. Uh, so he's no different from us. The power's not in Elijah. The power's in Yahweh. He's simply a witness to the reality of Yahweh. But when they see the grass dying, when Ahab sees his people thirsty or his animals starving, it proves to Ahab that uh, human beings cannot create life. We cannot manufacture life. We cannot control the weather. Uh, we are dependent on Yahweh. And that is a lesson that uh, we need to learn as well, uh, because we so easily forget in a time where we think that we can control pretty much anything with our technology, which is kind of an idol in many ways, especially as it becomes more personal. You talk about AI and, they, and Siri, and uh, people use words now for technology where it's becoming almost like this living thing. If you've seen um, Mission Impossible, the, the most recent one, they call like AI a name. It's almost like it's a god. So in a time where we think we can actually uh, produce life, whether it is through you know, cryogenics um, or downloading your brain into a computer, um, you might have heard of transhumanism. This is an idea people have in Silicon Valley especially that we can transcend our humanity. But the reality is that you did not give birth to yourself and you cannot alter the day of your death. That day is written down at this moment in the annals of God. And every breath we take between our birth and our death is a sheer gift from God. We have no consent. We do not give our consent to the breath that we breathe, to our heart beating. 
Uh, my wife had uh, breast cancer, and people often will congratulate her and say, you know, you beat cancer, which is like a pet peeve of hers. So don't, don't tell her that. She always says, I didn't beat anything. I didn't do anything. I, I just submitted to the treatments, which were awful, um, and, and so I didn't die. But God sustained me. I didn't beat anything. Uh, the fact is, um, we don't keep ourselves alive. Uh, you cannot get out of life alive, as one theologian said. But Baal was enticing, uh, because Baal made you think that if we, you know, jimmy the system in some way, if we offer right sacrifices, or if we tweak a few things, that we can control the weather. We can offer our sacrifices, and then Baal will have to do something in response to that. So we, ha we have some kind of leverage over Baal. We can, if we offer enough bulls or children, which they would also do, uh, if we offer them, if we offer our children to Baal, like literally, then, um, then Baal will give us life. And, you know, today we don't, we don't really do that. Um, nobody does that around here at least. But we do have other things that we try to use to give us life. And these are not bad things. But whether it's uh, supplements or vitamins or diets, exercise, fitness, yoga, mindfulness, medicine, whatever the things are that we, we think that those things give us life sometimes. We, we fool ourselves, whereas really they, they have their place, but it's only Yahweh using those things that actually gives us life. Only God gives us life. Those things don't really give us life. And God makes that very clear to Ahab, but he also makes it clear to Elijah. Because if Elijah's going to deliver that message, he's got to feel that himself. And so the first thing God does is he sends Elijah in verse 3 to hide from Ahab in this creek, which they call a brook here. Uh, Kareth is this creek where it enters the Jordan River. So it's, uh, everything else is dry because there's no rain, but this one little creek, there's a little bit of water left. And Elijah is hiding down in that creek bed because there are bounty hunters roaming around trying to kill him, sent out by Ahab, who hates Elijah. And so Elijah can't leave his, his hideout. I imagine him like under some kind of tree, you know, like with a creek where there's a tree roots, and you can kind of get up under there. So I imagine him like out in the night, maybe going around, but in the daytime he's hiding under that tree in the creek bed. And he has to have food delivered to him because he is so dependent on God. And this is where one of the crazier miracles occurs. Verse 4, uh, eat what the ravens bring to you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. Now, these are not cute little doves, which is kind of the way I would like my food to be delivered, but these are huge jet black ravens, like Edgar Allan Poe ravens that are uh, kind of creepy birds. They're unclean by Jewish law. They're scavengers. So uh, the Jewish people would not eat them because they're always eating other things. If you've seen ravens, huge black crows, you know you really wouldn't. It'd be like having a possum bringing you food in their mouth. You would not want that. So it's a very humbling thing to Elijah. Not only is he not lifting a finger to get his food, but it's coming from a source that is unclean to him, that is humiliating to him, just to show him how dependent he is. Now, I have been to hospitals many times as a patient. I, I absolutely despise being in hospitals. I try to get out of them as quickly as I can. I get really frustrated and irritable when they won't let me out of the hospital. I hate being in the bed the whole time. I hate uh, having 
these things stuck in your arms where you're completely immobile and uh, completely dependent and having you know, these machines making beeping sounds and medicines flowing into you and you just know you're completely at the mercy of the staff and the medicine and it's an awful feeling to be that dependent. And in many ways, that's what God is doing with these ravens. He's uh, having them, verse 6, bring them the meat and the bread morning and evening. Every morning, the ravens come with meat and bread. Obviously, it's a miracle. This is not what ravens never do this kind of thing. But um, if, if you think God made ravens, then it's really not hard for God to make the ravens do what God wants them to do. So it's like Israel in the desert. When Israel was wandering around the desert, they ate manna for 40 years because it was supernatural food. And God said to them, humans do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that was the point. He sustained them in the wilderness by something that they didn't manufacture that fell from heaven and that went away so they could only have it enough for that day. And so the question I think this passage poses to us is, again, do we realize how dependent we are on God for every breath we take, every, the next thing you eat, the next thing you drink, uh, that is all gift from God. We don't control those things. It's almost like we're hooked up to life support. We're that dependent on God. We don't realize that a lot of the time, but our daily well-being depends very much on resources outside of us. And that's what God is trying to get Elijah to see, and he's trying to get you to see that. That all these things we do to try to produce life, they don't produce life. God gives life. And God takes another step further when the creek dries up by sending Elijah. Guess where he sends Elijah? Not to Judah or Jerusalem in the south where he'll go really worship God. You would think that he might go south into the area where the people really believe. But instead, God sends Elijah up to Sidon, which is right where Baal comes from. That's Jezebel's hometown. And so in verse 9, uh, God tells Elijah, go and live in the village of Sarepta, near the city of Sidon, and that's Baal territory. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. That's almost worse than the ravens. This is not a bird, but it's a Gentile that the Israelites despised. She would have worshipped Baal, and she would have been poor because widows were poor, and it would be hard to receive food from someone like this widow from Zarepta. So in verse 10, he's already dreading arriving at the gates of the city, but it's even worse than he thought. Because it says, when he arrived at the gates of the village, verse 10, and I imagine like tumbleweeds and crows calling and a rusty gate swinging, um, he saw the widow... And it's not just a widow, it's a widow and a child, and she's gathering sticks for a last meal, which is kind of a visual of uh, the lifelessness of Baal. This is like Baal's backyard, and he can't even take care of his um, most vulnerable citizen, which is this widow and her child. So for Elijah to go ask her for food is like depending on a beggar for your meals. It'd be like going up at five points to the person there who's often asking for money and asking them for money and doing it regularly. That's what he's asking Elijah to do. And that's now moving into the second point about the widow. And there's even more scarcity 
than Elijah thought. Uh, it's, it's even worse. There's more lifelessness than he thought. And that's right where God is going to say, but I can bring life where Baal can't. I'm going to bring life right into the middle of Baal territory to a woman uh, who is a servant and a worshiper of Baal, uh, the most vulnerable member of that area. So now we're moving into the widow. And he asks the widow, and I don't even know what Elijah was thinking when he asked this, whether he knew he was up to something or if he was just like listening to God, you know, moment by moment, like God telling him what to do. But he asks her for a little water in a cup, verse 10, which again, that would have been humbling. That would have been embarrassing to ask that, um, to ask somebody who has almost nothing. And then when she starts to go back to her house to get him the water, which is incredible hospitality, incredibly sacrificial on her part, then he says in verse 11, bring me a bite to eat also. That's even worse. Now he's not just asking for water, but he's asking a widow and her son who would have had nothing for some of their food. And then she says to him in verse 12, I swear I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. Again, this is the fruit of worshiping Baal. I was just gathering sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. So you can imagine that Elijah must have shuddered at that point to just see the horrifying nightmare of lifelessness that was going on in that town and this widow's life. Uh, such A widow and her son and no food, just gathering sticks for one last meal. But then somewhere in the middle of that, God spoke to Elijah very clearly, because this couldn't have come out of Elijah's own heart. Uh, but Elijah tells her, don't be afraid. And I'm not even sure if he knew why he was telling her that, but he said, don't be afraid. In other words, you're not going to die. Um, you and your son are not going to die. You don't have to be afraid. And I'm sure she was afraid. And then he says, this bold, kind of defiant, like in your face, promise from God against Baal. Elijah says in verse 13, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers. And then, I mean, again, talk about a miracle. This is a daily, <clears throat> it's like manna in the desert. Every single day, you're going to have to go back to that container, which is going to be empty at night, and you're going to find that in that container, uh, there is flour and there's olive oil, which are the two ingredients you need for bread. And so it's kind of like the feeding of the 5,000. I'm not really sure when that bread started appearing in those baskets. I don't know, at one point in the evening, the oil and the flour appeared, but this is God telling her, trust me, trust me, trust me. Every morning, trust me, it's going to be there. You're going to go to sleep nervous, but the next morning you're going to wake up and the oil's going to be there and the flour's going to be there. Month after month after month, God is calling her to trust him. Stop trusting Baal. Clearly, that's not working well. But trust me. Uh, first with the water, the drink, and then with the bread. <clears throat> and then finally, kind of the ultimate act of trust is God says to her, I want you to trust me with your son. I want you to trust and believe in me uh, with your son, the very life uh, that you find most precious and that's verse 17. And this is, um, this is just really surprising in the story that this would happen. Must have been surprising to Elijah and, of course, to the widow as well. But the son became sick and grew worse and worse 
And I'm sure they just kept praying for a miracle. Uh, but it said the son finally died. And this is after months of God keeping them all alive miraculously. And you're like, why is God toying with him? Why is he messing with him? Like to keep him alive all those months and then just suddenly let him die. The woman <clears throat> is just flooded with pain and probably rage, bewilderment, confusion. What have you done to me? Verse 18. Have you come here to expose my sin and kill my son? It's a very understandable lament, uh, complaint, anger, fury maybe. But God welcomes that. God doesn't uh, tell her to calm down. Elijah doesn't tell her to calm down. Uh, don't worry about it. No big deal. Um, it's just a circle of life. You know, he doesn't tell her that. Uh, in fact, he grieves. He grieves with her, which is so important for us to know when something like this happens. And you know, from the book of Job, we know this would have been a very long uh, process of, of grief. But God then goes, uh, Elijah goes to God on her behalf and complains to God as if he's her. He advocates for her. Why have you brought this tragedy to her? She opened her home to me, and now you've done this to her. And you can, you can imagine that's a shorter version of a much longer prayer or series of prayers, maybe maybe over a day of prayer. He does not minimize in any way the tragedy of what's happened, the darkness of death. Um, he does not act like that's okay at all. And again, I don't know how long that whole process lasted of grief. Um, but at some point, again, he, he, he must have heard from, from Yahweh, he must have heard very clearly from Yahweh um, that there's life that is stronger than death. There is a life that is stronger than death, the life of the living God. And so he says to her, give me your son, verse 19. And I can imagine he's like trembling as he puts out his hands because he doesn't know for sure what's going to happen here. Um, he, he, you know, he, he took her upstairs in verse 19 because maybe he didn't even want her to see what was going on. So he asks, um, he asks her, can I take your son upstairs? And uh, he, gets her, he gets the son out of her sight. Nothing like this has ever happened before in the Bible. Like the curse of Eden was, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And, and no one has ever broken that from that day till this day. This, this is the ultimate curse of Eden. This is the wages of sin uh, is death. And there's Elijah carrying this child upstairs to the second story of her house, laying the son on the bed. And uh, I'm not sure if he knew what was going to happen next. And you know that he had to doubt that, that's, that anything would happen because he was just complaining to God. You know, why have you brought this tragedy? And it really never tells you what God and Elijah are talking about. But then in verse 21, this is kind of part of the bizarre part of this miracle, is he stretches himself out over the child. So he must have laid the child, um, you know, like spread eagle on the bed. And then he lays on the child, completely identifying with the child, like, you know, face to face, hand to hand, foot to foot. And he doesn't just do that one time. He does it three times. And I imagine every time he does it, he's praying, like crying out, please bring back the life of this child. You know, you've, you told me I, that this child would come back. 
And he does it once and nothing happens. He does it twice and nothing happens. Lord, please let this child's life return to him, verse 21. Again, this has never happened before. So you've got the famine, and then you've got the ravens, and then you have the starvation, and you have the death, and it's just like, it's down, down, down. And then all of a sudden, right when it can't get any worse, at the nadir, at the very bottom of that pit, that's where God's life just explodes into the story. And it says in verse 22, Then the Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life returned, and he revived. Can you imagine when Elijah first saw that child's mouth reopen and just, like, gasped the breath, that first breath, back in his body? That, again, no one had ever seen like, anything like that before. This, this starving <clears throat> woman and her child who were, um, they were in the service of Baal. They were, they were, they were terrorized by Baal, this terrible false god. And now this woman, when she sees her son come down the stairs, carried by Elijah, she turns from a servant of Baal, an idol, to a daughter of Yahweh. And that's the climax of the whole story, is her confession of faith. The whole story is God drawing her out of worship of these idols into communion with himself. And she says in verse 24, now I know that you're from God and that he speaks through you. And now she's worshiping Yahweh, and will always do so. And I think, again, the question for us is, do we believe that, um, that Yahweh has that much life? Not, not necessarily a resuscitation of life like this, but uh, have you ever seen life come from some kind of tomb? You know, someone was telling me recently their house felt like a tomb, because uh, somebody had died in their house. And... It's just the whole house felt like a tomb. Or maybe it's relationally, it feels like a tomb. But the question that God is drawing out of us is, do you believe that God can produce life out of nothing? That God is a God who brings life from the dead and calls things into being that do not exist, as Paul says in Romans 4. Do you believe that God can do that? That in the very pit of despair and nightmare, that that's where God... Uh, brings forth life, that he is a God that can do that. Verse 23, look, your son is alive. Your son is alive. God is giving his people language here for the first time um, for something they can't even imagine. At this point in the relationship between God and his people, they can't really even imagine what this is pointing to eventually. But when he says, look, your son is alive, um, that, that means that he's been restored to biological life, the kind of life we have, the air we breathe right now, um, the heart that's beating in us. But of course, this whole biological system uh, will die. And so Elijah was not enough, and bringing the child back to life was not enough. Um, that doesn't solve the problem at all. It just prolongs it. It just delays the problem. And what we really need is someone to not just bring back a child to life, but to bring back life permanently, forever, to defeat death. Um, and we know that Jesus also met a widow with a child that had died at Nain, the village of Nain. And unlike Elijah, who had to lay down and pray three times, uh, if you read the story of Jesus and the widow at Nain, he simply touches the child. That's all he does, to show how much more powerful he is than Elijah. Because whereas Elijah had to call out to the Lord, Jesus doesn't even pray. He just touches the child and it comes to life. Which is to show us that 
there was so much life in Jesus, uh, Yahweh incarnate, that, uh, that he could do more than resuscitate a human being. And we needed what we really need and still do need, because we all know people who have died, and we all know the darkness of death, the finality of death. What we all need is for the living God to come and become one of us and then stretch himself out over us completely and identify with us, you know, hand-to-hand, face-to-face, and to bring his life into us, to lock himself into us completely and to bring his eternal life into us and raise us into a life that will never end. And we receive that at this table. We receive the, um, the complete identification of God with us at this table. Um, when Jesus broke his body and shed his blood, uh, it was so that we could come into him and be raised uh, with his life. He completely died with us. He had to go down to the bottom where we were. He had to scrape the bottom of our lives so that from that point he could draw us up to eternal life. And that's what we celebrate in this meal. And so on the night he was betrayed, it was on the night that he lost his biological life, that he endured the curse of death, the curse of Eden, um, although he had never sinned. You know, the wages of sin were death. He never sinned, and yet he earned our death. He died for us. He didn't have to die for his own sins. On the night he was betrayed uh, and lost his life, he said, this is my body, and uh, I'm dying for you. I'm giving up my life for you. No one takes my life from me. I give it willingly, he said. And in the same way, he took a cup, and when he gave thanks, he poured Remember, we love these rascals.